Hi there, and welcome to the latest episode of What If, with me, Lorraine. And me, Rosie. And it's the show where we talk all about those what if moments, sort of life-changing moments. Mm -hmm. And this week, we have got as our guest, Jane Fallon, who is a best-selling author. I love her books. She used to be a TV producer as well. She did, she did. She did EastEnders and she did This Life. I love that. It was so, so good. She also happens to be married to Ricky Gervais, Mm. who we love. We do. So we're going to start by going back to you growing up and your parents owned a newsagent. We were sort of wondering together if that hadn't been the way that you grew up, would that work ethic be instilled in you? And do you think that's helped you throughout your career, I guess? That's a really interesting question because I feel really strongly that it has um, Mm. helped me because they worked so hard, my mum and dad. Obviously, it was their own business. And they wanted to put their all in it, but they did get up at 4.30 every morning, seven days a week. And they used to have Wednesday afternoons off and Sunday afternoons off, but that was it. And they had five kids upstairs. And they were really, their big thing that they always instilled in us all the time is you're not, nothing's going to come to you for free. You've got to work for it. So we were all encouraged to work in the shop for no money. I'd like to just add, (laughs) Um, you know, we all used to do rounds and stuff like that. I used to serve the ice cream, we had a little ice cream sell a bit and then as soon as we were sort of 13 14 we were expected to get Saturday jobs and I'm really grateful for all of that actually because I think it's very easy to just be able to think oh nothing's going to happen for me and not really try and I feel like I was always told no if you really try things will you know something will happen. Mm. What was your first job on a Saturday? Uh, gosh what was my first one I think it was a chambermaid I did a lot of chambermaiding in a lot of different places which I actually loved (laughs) something because you're on your own and you're in your own little space and I quite like a bit of cleaning this because you can see the result you know you can see the direct Mm. result so I used to quite like that pottering around so I did that in several different places I worked in a few shops I worked in WH Smith's on a Saturday and then actually for a long time my sister had the best Saturday job ever in a bookshop And I was so jealous. (laughs) And then when she got a bit older and she didn't want to do it anymore, I took that job over. So I had that job on Saturdays and in the holidays for probably about four years, I think. And did you all live above the newsagents? Yes, we did. Yeah, we did. With a dog and a cat. So there was a lot (laughs) going on up there. But also nice that my mum and dad were downstairs. So, you know, you could run up and down the stairs to see them or you could just hang out in the shop if you wanted to. And because I was the youngest of five, they had a series of ready built-in babysitters for me so they didn't have to worry about what was going on with me up there. Did you find it though when you've got like you know your brothers and sisters your mum and dad and and the pets and all of that sometimes it was quite hard just to get some time to yourself and do you are you someone who wants to have that time to yourself? Absolutely that I would say is still one of my major priorities in life um so yes absolutely I so I carved out little hiding places for myself where I thought no one else would go So I would either, if the weather was bad, I would go up in the attic and I'd climb up on top of the oil tank, we had an oil tank, and sit up there with a torch and read. Uh, And if the weather was better, I'd go out the back and I'd either sit in the dog's kennel, because the dog had a big kennel out the back with straw in it, and probably (laughs) fleas, I don't know, God knows. Um, I'd sit in there and once, God knows why, once I got in the coal bunker with a torch and sat in there, but that wasn't very good. Or we also had a compost heap. And I would sit on there because there are just places where I knew no one would come. No one would look for me because they wouldn't want to go to those places. So, yeah, I would do that all the time. And I'm still the same. Every day I'm always thinking, what time am I going to get on my own today? I really like my own space. 
And that love of books, was there anything else that you wanted to do? Or was that the plan? That was the really pie-in-the-sky dream. Mm. So it never felt like it could be a plan because I didn't really see how it could ever happen. So I went through various plans. Really, I wanted to, if I couldn't do that, which I just put to one side and I just wrote quietly in my bedroom. So then I had, next I had gymnast, which clearly didn't work out. And then I had uh, vets, but I was absolutely rubbish at sciences, but I just wanted to work with animals. So I didn't really have a sensible plan for years, actually. And then when I was about 14, I think, you might remember this, Lorraine, you're way too young, Rosie. Um, <laughs> there was a TV show on called The Paper Chase. It was about uh, American law students, I guess at Harvard, I'm not sure. And they all, they had this terribly inspirational professor and they would all sit around in the grounds, a beautiful autumnal, it was always autumn, autumnal grounds, and they would discuss, you know, the law in this way that looked incredibly interesting. So I foolishly said at school one day, I'm going to go and do law and thinking it would be like that. And because <laughs> I uh, went, was, it was a very non-academic school where I went, so they couldn't believe their luck that they had a child that had expressed an interest in doing law. So they kind of never let me forget it. So I somehow ended up going to university to do law so I went to do that and I got there and I thought this is a terrible mistake see that's brilliant though that you thought it was a terrible mistake because what if you hadn't and felt this expectation that you had to go through with this course I mean it's, it's actually quite difficult to to take the road that's right for you it is and it was scary and I'm so grateful actually that I somehow was brave enough to announce that I wasn't going to do it anymore because a lot of my friends on that course ended up sticking with it. And I bumped into one of them maybe 10 years later on the street. And he just said, I'm so miserable because you get on this treadmill of doing this thing and then you're on it. So I just thought I did a term and I thought I can't bear it. It was nine o'clock lectures, which was so not the idea of going to university <laughs> in those days of grants when we didn't have to worry about paying the money back. And it was, you know, it was all very theoretical. There was lots of Roman law. It was incredibly dry. I just felt completely out of my depth and uh, hemmed in. But also, I'd made a lot of friends by that point, so I didn't want to leave. Mm. So I went to the English department and I said to them, is there any chance I could change to do English? And they said, oh, yes, but you'll have to come back next September and start again. So I thought, oh, I've got all my friends, got somewhere to live and all of this. So then I thought, what else can I do? So I had a history A-level, so I went to the history department and I said, is there any chance I could change to history? And they said, oh, yes, start tomorrow. So thankfully... I swapped, yeah, which was, I'm so lucky that I was able to do it. I'd never have ended up in TV, I don't think, if I'd have gone through with a law degree. What was the first sort of proper job, if you like? I mean, you've grafted since you, you know, doing the Saturday jobs and all of that and working in the news agents, but your first sort of big grown-up job. My first big grown-up job was, so I, when I left university, I flopped around quite a lot. I didn't know what to do. Because now I had a history degree, which is not really of any use to anyone unless you want to be a historian. And I was really scared. Do you remember when they used to do those? I don't they still do them, Rosie, you might know. Those milk round interviews when people were at university, they used to do set up big interviews for people in their third year and all the big companies would come and they would interview as many people as they could about entry-level jobs. And it was very competitive and everyone got very excited. And I was terrified of getting my foot on the bottom of the wrong ladder hmm. again and finding myself in 10 years' time doing the wrong thing. So I refused to do any of that. My poor dad was so exasperated with me by this point. I left university. I did a load more part-time jobs, anything I could find, nothing career-wise. And he used to send me, ad he used to cut out adverts from newspapers 
bless him, um, and just send them to me and say, oh, have you seen this? And uh, <laughs> nothing really caught my eye. I, I, sometimes I applied for them just because I thought I can get a job for a while, maybe. But he sent me this one and it said, theatrical and literary agency is looking for a girl Friday, which is what they used to call them in those terrible days. <laughs> and it was in one of those very attic-y little set of offices and there were theatre posters all over the walls and there were piles of scripts. And I walked in and I just thought, oh my God, I'm just in love with this. I just love this world. And I didn't get the job. Oh. And I, for the first time, I was absolutely gutted, but I thought, I know what I want to do now. I want to go into that world. And so I started trying to kind of look for things and apply for things. And this was in, I think, October. And on Christmas Eve, I got a phone call and it was someone from the agency. And they said, oh, the person that we took on didn't work out. And we wondered if you wanted to start in the new year. So I actually got the job in, after two or three months, I got the job in the end, which was honestly one of the best moments of my life. But it was so good that you had the opportunity to see what you really wanted to do and what really excited you and, and all of that, which is which is brilliant. How did you get from that, though, to getting into TV? Because you, you know, you did, you're an incredible career in television and television production. It was it was quite remarkable. I mean, the way that you've gone on to have then another hugely successful career writing. But how did you go from, from that job into TV and then, you know, producing things like EastEnders and all sorts of other things? So, yeah, I was there to do everything and I was sort of assisting all the agents. And the longer I stayed, the more I realised, one, I didn't really want to be an agent. But also I, I started reading all the scripts that came in. I couldn't not if a script came in, I couldn't not read it. I just can't resist it. If, if anything gets sent, you know, or, or someone sends me a script, I can't not read it. I just love scripts. Hmm. Um, so I started sort of looking after a few young writers and I knew that that was my interest. But then one of the clients actually, who was a screenwriter said to me, oh, you should be a script editor. And I didn't know what that was really at that point. So I looked into it and I thought, oh, that's exactly the kind of thing I want to do. So I left the agency and I worked as a freelance script reader for a while which is basically I worked for, I started off working for Hampstead Theatre and, and then I worked for various other theatres and then got a foot in the door at TV companies, which is basically you read all of their submitted scripts. So obviously if you're a theatre, you've got people endlessly sending you scripts and someone's got to read them and sort of comment on them. So I would do that as a freelance for all different places, hoping that somehow a job would come up somewhere. And eventually through one of the TV companies that I read for, which was Central TV in Birmingham, mm -hmm. um, a job came up as a script editor on an insane show. I mean, I can see why they took me a complete nobody with no experience because it was a, it was made by the people who made Crossroads and it was a three times a week soap opera set in space. And, it <laughs> was, and I, so I worked there for a year and it was a complete baptism of fire. It was amazing. And when you were reading these scripts and working on the TV shows, was there a moment that was, in a way, your big break? I mean, the most significant break, I guess, was so I worked at East. I, I did the Terrible Soap, and then I did a couple of other shows, and then I ended up at EastEnders as the series script editor. So I oversaw all the kind of storylines and stuff. And then I w kind of worked my way up to being a producer there. And I guess my really big break was when I was leaving there. I'd produced there for a year, and I knew I wanted to move on. And usually, the way it works with shows like that is you will then go maybe and produce something like Casualty or one of their sort of long-running shows. And I just felt like I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to go and do something new and like being on the beginning of something because that was the fun to me, for me is that kind of side of it. So I decided to leave and I had a few ideas of my own and I thought I'm just going to send them out to people, see what they say. And the first person, in fact, the only person I ended up sending them to in the end was Tony Garnett, who 
I'd never met. I just loved his work right from the early days of the Kathy Come Homes. And, but he'd recently done cardiac arrest and I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And I thought he's the kind of person that I want to work with. So I sent him a couple of ideas that I had just out of the blue. And um, he called me in for a meeting. And one of the first things he said was, OK, I don't think any of these are a goer. So I was like, fine. But we just got on really well. We just had the same, I really, everything about the way he made TV, I really admired. And as a human being, he just seemed so straightforward and down to earth. And it was all about getting the best on the screen and not getting tied up in the politics and all that kind of thing. We got on like a house on fire. And really luckily for me, he'd just been brought an idea by the BBC who wanted him to come up with a show about young lawyers. And he had a pilot script with Amy Jenkins and he wanted to put a team together because it was about young people. He wanted to put a young team together because he would say, I don't know anything about people this age. You know, I'm 60. I know nothing. You, I need people who know what it's like. And so he decided, he asked me if I wanted to do it. So he took a complete punt on me, which was amazing. And then basically kind of gave me carte blanche to do what I wanted. And he just said, because obviously when you produce on EastEnders, you're only kind of half producing because it's such a big team it kind of runs itself you're not having to worry about you know all the budget and all that kind of stuff because that's all done so I had a lot of gaps in my experience but he just said I'm here in the background if you need anything otherwise I'm not going to interfere at all you just get on with it if you get in trouble come and tell me so that is another one of those timing things that I was just so lucky that I wrote to him at that exact point when he was looking for specifically a young kind of inexperienced producer And you handed your notice in before you started writing the first book. I did, which sounds incredibly brave, but... Yeah, it does, (laughs) it really does. Um, I was freelance, basically. I'd been at the same company for a while as a freelance, so I was freelance. So I knew that if it all went wrong, I could go back to work and it wouldn't be too humiliating. So Mm. I did hand my notice in from that job, but I kind of had a little safety net hanging underneath me. But I thought that a lot of, I'm so in awe of those people that work all day and write novels in the evenings. I don't know how mm. that, because writing a novel is your job. I mean, it's yeah. a it's a proper job and you've got to put in at least an eight hour day. I mean, they mustn't sleep. Just mustn't <laughs> I know, sleep. I know. Mm, I guess it's and that. also just keep going, you know, when you yeah. must be exhausted and you don't know if you've got a book deal and it's incredible. And I, I was, I could never be like that. I would write, but I could never write in that kind of concentrated way and do a job Mm. at the same time. And I just thought the only way I I decided that it was time to put my money where my mouth was. So the only way I was going to do it is if I gave everything else up, gave myself timescale, told everyone this is what I was going to do for the first time ever in my life. And then I'd be sort of shamed into sitting down and working every day because people would be asking me how it was going and, you know, I'd Mm. have to kind of report back to my friends. So for me personally, that was the only way it could work. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
And do you think this is you now with books or is there going to be another sort of, oh, maybe I should do this instead? No, oh God, a gymnast, what do you mean? Um, <laughs> no, this is me. This is me. I can't believe my luck that I'm writing and I'm published and they want to publish more. I'm, my dream now is to just keep doing this until they kick me out, basically, or until I keel over. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect for me. It's wonderful when you when you find that. And of course, you've been with your man for, gosh, since you were at uni. You and Ricky have been together since university. Yeah. That's incredible. And I think you, see the way that you say that you want to be on your own, Is are you good at that, the two of you, that he can go away and do his thing? And, you know, obviously huge success with, with the office, of course. And he's, you know, he's become sort of part of, that's become part of our culture, of course it has. But can he go to one end of the house and you go to the other and you'd both just work away? Uh, we can, although he's much more sociable when he works. So he will quite happily work away in the living room where I'm trying to work and play music and chat and sing. And Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Obviously, I'll sit there like, mm, this is my space. Get out. It's been like that through lockdown. Um, so, uh, but we, but he's he knows that I need like space on my own. So he's good at, when he knows I need it, he's good at like letting me have it. And you are, um, you do have someone in the house who, and I say someone um, quite rightly, Pickle. Pickle the cat came into your lives. I mean, just the cutest thing with the best eyes. She's gorgeous. Green eyes that are amazing. <laughs> now, really, she just is basically, I guess she's the boss. Of yes, me. of course. Yeah, yeah totally. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like, well, you know what it's like now with your lovely little puppy. It's not oh, a home really baby. unless you've got an animal in it yeah. I feel like yeah. Um, yeah yeah now everything revolves around pickle basically and she she loves the <laughs> schedule pickle loves it I think because she grew up in chaos she had a kind of horrible first four years of her life she was found in a hoarding situation with 15 other cats and a dog oh. uh dark dingy they were fed on dog food which you can't cats are carnivores they can't develop properly on dog food and no litter. They weren't. They didn't go out, but there was no litter, so they just had to go on the floor. I mean, just horrible. Oh. And so now she loves a routine. So as soon as you do something, maybe twice at the same time, she expects it. So she'll sit by her hmm. bowl at a certain time, or you know, she knows there's a time when we both tend to be sitting on the sofa after lunch. So she'll come. She'll sit on the sofa in a particular place after lunch and wait for us to come and join her. And it's very sweet. Very very sweet. Was the plan to adopt her or were you just supposed to look after Yeah, you were supposed to look after her. Did you mean the public plan or the secret, my secret plan? Because <laughs> uh, our lovely old cat Ollie had died just before the first lockdown last year. And I would get an, I would always want to have an animal immediately. But we decided, let, let's be sensible. We obviously didn't know this whole situation was going to go on for a year. But we decided, let's think about maybe we should try and do some of the long trips that we've talked about but we never have because we felt guilty about leaving the cat for too long and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we thought we'll just wait, see what happens and decide. And as the year ticked on, and obviously we weren't going anywhere or doing anything because it was all in lockdown. And I was just getting more and more, I just needed a little furry thing to love. Mm. And so I came up with this plan that we could foster. Uh, so I sold that to Ricky as, so we could foster the odd cat here and there and you know then you keep it you have it a few days a few weeks a few months until they find the perfect owner for it and you've given that animal a lovely little start in life and a nicer time than it would have in a rescue with a load of other animals and you know we've done our bit we've had a little bit of cat action and everything so I got him to agree to that and I got in touch with a friend of mine who runs charity good old dogs matter and said if you come across any cats that need fostering 
so she said, well, funnily enough, she told me about these cats that had just been found and had gone to a charity called Feline Friends. And so I said, fine, we'll foster one. So she turned up with Pickle, who was like this bit, looked so sad. She's massive, absolutely massive. And she just looked like this big, sad lump. And she hid behind the sofa for a couple of days. Anyway, a couple of days in, she came down and she did a few, couple of things that swung it for us. Like she sat on her haunches and looked round and then she got on Ricky's lap and then she got on the bed when we were in bed that night. And we were like, we're keeping her. Of course we're keeping her. Like there's no, <laughs> but I felt like I had to wait for him to say it because it had all been my master plan. And the minute she sat on his lap, he was like, oh, we can't let her go. I was like, yes, my plan has worked. <laughs> That's a very good plan. I heartily approve. And you're right, a house becomes a home. Um, for you, I mean, obviously, Pickle is uh, like your daughter. Uh, and the books, of course, as we said, it is, it is like your your baby, you know, it's is kind of like that. But kids were never on the radar, were they really? It wasn't something, you know, because a lot of people have got those kind of real maternal or paternal instincts. But for you, no, just wasn't on the cards. No, it wasn't. I never thought about it when I was little. It was never something that appealed to me. And I was, I was never someone that played with like lots of dolls and things. It was all about the animals really in the outdoors for me. Um, and then as I got older... I knew I wasn't that interested. I didn't have that maternal thing. And I thought if I ever get that wave of maternal longing, and I just never did. And I think part of it is I don't think I'd be a very good mum, is the honest truth. I'm a real catastrophist. I'm, I get really paranoid. I'm that person that if you were coming over and you were 10 minutes late, I'd be ringing the hospital saying as a car crashed, <laughs> something <laughs> happened. And I feel like I would smother them with my terror of something happening to them. And I feel like having kids, you know, your job is to make them independent and able to make their own way in the world. And I think I probably would have smothered the life out of them on that one. So I think it's good, probably, that I never really wanted them because I don't think I'd have been the best mother in the world. I completely understand that. And I think that's a brilliant way. You obviously know yourself really well. And also, you kind of paddle your own canoe. And I, and I like that because sort of friends, relative society, if you like, expect an awful lot of us and sometimes expect you to follow a particular path. And I think it's brilliant that you haven't. You've just done what you what's right for you. Mm. You know what's right for you. where that comes from. Yeah, that's what confidence comes from. Because a lot of people would probably like to know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm lucky that I didn't have the pressure on me. I think being both of us from big families and the youngest, both of us, that didn't half take the pressure off because we had older brothers and sisters that had had kids. So it wasn't like there was the pressure on us to be the ones providing the grandchildren. Mm. And I think that made it a lot easier. I think if I'd have felt like I was letting anyone else down by not having kids, it would have been a much more difficult decision. Um, but as it was, it could be totally in our hands, which was perfect. And also, thankfully, because I kept thinking I, at some point I need to raise this with Ricky, obviously. And I was like terrified that what if he said he wanted them? And luckily, when I said I don't want children, he said, oh, thank goodness, neither do I. And thankfully, we both agreed because that's the other yeah. thing. I think if you're in a relationship and one of you really wants them, the other one doesn't. I think that's really hard, especially on the woman who's going to be the one who's going to actually have to, you know, have the child. Yeah. No, very much so. And you two, you, you know, like I said, you've been together for a, a long, long time, both real grafters. And also what I think is really good is the fact that you went through some pretty tough times together. You know, like you, there wasn't much money around. You know, you you lived uh, you lived above a, a house of ill repute. That's <laughs> a good way to say it. I was, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was but, like, how is my mum going to word this? Oh, okay. <laughs> but that must have actually in some ways been rather interesting. 
all oh, these goings on that were going on. Was it? Was it not nice? Horrible. Yeah, because it, uh, the doors were next to each other. So we were in on the first floor upstairs. There was oh, another no. flat up above us. And the, there were two doors next to each other and they looked the same. So our doorbell would ring oh, at, no. at three o'clock in the morning and you'd answer the thing and it would be someone going, massage, massage. Why are you oh. coming for a massage at three o'clock in the morning? Oh. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was not a very pleasant experience. And they were quite scary, the people that mm. ran it as well. They kind of frightened the life out of me. But when, so, you've, yeah, but when you've gone through that though, now that you're able to enjoy your success that you've worked blinking hard for, um, it makes it all the better, I would have thought. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think you appreciate things much more, obviously, when you've haven't had them all your life. Um, so yeah, we certainly had, I mean, ridiculous lack of money for years. Like we live with that flat above the brothel. Let's call it what it was. <laughs> it, was <laughs> uh, it had no heating whatsoever, and it had oh. meters, but the landlord had rigged the meter so it would just use up too much money. So you had to put 50p in, which then, this is like 1984, five. That's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot of yeah. money. And you had to put that in and the, the electric fire would work for one hour and then the electric would go. And we just couldn't afford to do it. So we went through, I think, six winters with absolutely no heating whatsoever, icicles on the inside. And actually what we used to do is we used to get together enough, we worked out it was cheaper to get together enough money to go to the local pub for a pint and sit there our plan was we'll sit there all evening and that will be cheap with one pint and that will be cheaper than sitting at home and actually we got sort of adopted by these king's cross kind of gangstery locals and they used to buy us drinks all the time it was like we became their sort of little <laughs> pets we used to go in there and they used to buy us drinks they were lovely actually they were the nicest bunch of people yeah they used to buy us drinks all evening and never expect anything back and it was it was like this amazing sense of community and then they would all Every now and again, you'd hear them discussing how they went to prison for armed robbery. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it was a strange time. <laughs> colourful, colourful characters. Character like, building. <laughs> and character building too, that, that's for sure. But the both of you, like I said, you know, you've both grafted really hard to get to where, where you've been. And here you are. But I wonder, how good are you with the whole kind of other side of it all, which is, you know, get your dress on and, and toddle down the red carpet and all that malarkey? Um, is that something that you could rather do without? Or is it good fun? Do you know what? I've At the beginning, I found that all a bit traumatising and I actually mm. have come to really enjoy the dressing up nights because actually mm. the privilege of having, you know, someone comes and does your hair and makeup and you're wearing a beautiful frock and you basically look like the best version of yourself you possibly can. That You know, I could never, I can't, I'm used to this with makeup and stuff like that. Um, so there's something I do really enjoy about that. You know, you feel like it's sort of kind of special for a night. You know, some of it I could do without really but um generally it's really good i get very self-conscious if you know we go out for a meal and i realize that people are watching or listening i mean you must have this all the time people listen in on your conversations or you know you'll look around and they've got their phones sort of like this up to the <laughs> side of their face and then the and flash like goes off away and I find all that a bit um, stressful. If people come over and they say to Ricky, oh, can we have a photo? That's completely fine. But it's the sort of yeah. sneaky stuff that slightly freaks me out. But no, generally I do. I enjoy the, we don't do it very often, either the big nights out. So I think when we do, it feels a bit more special. Um, so we end each episode by getting guests to tell us their biggest fail, regret and win. Um, so we're wondering what yours are. Well, I think my fail, I have like a series of fails, <laughs> of small fails. And I think they all come down to one thing, which is I find it really hard to stick at things, which really annoys me about myself. So, for example, driving. 
I didn't learn to drive till I was in my 30s. I was absolutely terrified. And then I loved it. From the second I started, I absolutely loved it. Somehow bluffed my way through passing my test. And then I bought a little uh, secondhand car, went in it once, was so scared without my instructor there that I just thought I can't do this. And what I should have done is I should have phoned her up, got her over, had her to take, give her, give me a few more lessons. But I just gave up. I sold the car, <laughs> sold the car to one of my sisters who thankfully needed a car. And I've never driven again. Never. That's a bit like you, Mum. It's a bit, that's oh, very like it? me. I don't, mm. I don't like driving. I've not driven for about, must be four or five years. And it took me four goes to pass my test because I was a nervous wreck. And you, because you, you learned to drive really young, Rosie. I just drive you about now. Yeah, exactly. So I just, are I you walk. confident, Rosie? Are you happy driving? Um, yeah, it's, if my dad's in the car, I'm a mess. Oh, it's a nightmare. It's he, horrible. Yeah, that's a nightmare. But anyone else, it's fine. <laughs> okay. Totally fine. But as soon as he's in the car, it's just, yeah, everything goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I'm not good at it. I don't have the confidence to 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 do it. And I think I left it a wee bit like you, Jane. I think I left it too long. I was in my late I was in my late twenties. I think you have to do it when you're a teenager. Yeah, because when you're a teenager, you can do anything. And now yeah. I can't. Sometimes I think to myself, okay, so which ways do the pedals go on a car? And I can't even remember which way round they are. If it's A B C that way or A B C that way. Oh, um, yeah, stupid. I just let all of that go. And I do that a lot. I start something and I really enjoy it for a while, and then I hit the first hurdle and I stop. And that's a massive fail in my character. I feel. <laughs> and what about uh, regret? I think regrets. Probably, you know, my biggest regret is letting some quite a lot of friendships go. I always found it hard when I was young because I was such a loner, such an isolated little child, even though I lived with all these people. And I always found it hard to make friends. And I never really kind of got how you have to work at friendships and you have to make the effort. And so whenever my circumstances changed, like when I went to college or when I left college and went off to do other things, and I would sort of let those friendships drift. And it wasn't because I didn't care about those people. It was I didn't really... But one, it felt like a kind of weirdly massive effort, but also I didn't really understand what I had to do. It felt stressful to have to keep, I hate talking on the phone, had to keep picking the phone up. And so I let a lot of those friendships sort of trickle away. And I, I'm sad about that. Um, and I've got, I've got much better as I got older because you start to realise how valuable those people are that you've known for a long time. Mm. And now I'm much, much better. And I, even though sometimes I get a bit like, oh, I don't know if I want to talk to anybody today, but I know that I have to make the effort you know, because I love those people and I care about them and they care about me and it has to be a two-way street. So I've got much, much better, but there are people that I wish I could get in touch with now and, you know, see how we got on, see if we still mm. got on. That would be great. That's a good one, isn't it? And I think a lot of people would, I certainly identify with that because it is hard. It is hard to keep up with everybody and you're right. And it's it's sad when it's somebody that you that you want to connect with and it just becomes a little bit difficult for all sorts of reasons whether it's geography whatever it may be you know it's it's, it's quite hard I think it's probably easier these days with social media and stuff I yes. think if that had been around yes. when I was younger although I think it would have ruined my life in many ways I think it would have uh, helped with this one yeah yeah and what about your win well win I think apart from the kind of obvious relationship thing but I'm not going to get all soppy uh I <laughs> uh, my getting a publishing deal absolutely 100% is up there as me winning a gold medal in the olympics um mm -hmm. yeah it's the best thing professionally that's ever happened to me and it changed my life and it's made the second half of my life just so much more fulfilling really than the first half probably was and i guess with without that you sort of said you would have probably just stayed in 
TV writing? I would have stayed in TV and I was getting really frustrated with it at the time when I gave up, just bored. I'd been doing it for 20 years, I was bored. Also, you get, you know, you don't want to be doing the hours forever. It's very long hours. It's very all or nothing TV. When you're working on a show, you think about nothing else. You're all, you know, it's all the time. And you kind of get tired of that. So I'd probably still be doing it, but really grumpily. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want that. Jane, thank you. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much. I love hearing all the stories about pickle as well and how animals can really enrich your life and make things better long may you continue can't wait to to read the next book and thank you so much for talking to us thank you so much oh it's been an absolute pleasure thank you both so much it was lovely 